This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you come among us by your Holy Spirit, opening our hearts to the truth of your word, giving us imaginations to connect with the story. So come, Holy Spirit, do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Wednesday of this week, I came across a meme on Facebook that made me chuckle. A friend had posted this. Ascension is the day that Jesus started working from home. And I was amused by the thought of the Lord of the universe working remotely because of a virus. And we've seen other memes where the Lord's Supper, the Da Vinci picture of that is turned into a Zoom call, and the first words of Jesus at the Lord's Supper are, is everybody's audio on? Now, while I was still smiling at the meme, a random thought popped into my head, which is actually a pretty common experience for me, actually. The thought was, Jesus ascended on a work day. Huh. We celebrate ascension on a Thursday. What if Jesus had ascended on a Saturday? What if it had been 42 days instead of 40 days from Easter when Jesus rose. Wouldn't we have thought, if Jesus ascended on a Saturday, that Jesus was resting? But he ascended on a workday. The ascension was not the beginning of Sabbath rest. It was the continuation of his work. His work was not finished on the cross. There was more to be done. Now, I don't normally suggest that we base theological reflection on Facebook posts, although it does raise all kinds of really fruitful meditation on original sin. But I started thinking of Jesus working from home and pondered what exactly is Jesus's from home work. What is Jesus doing? Well, if you have a Bible handy, you might want to grab it. I'll be referring to several passages beyond the ones that are in the bulletin. But let's start with the story of the ascension. The story is pretty straightforward. After rising from the dead on Easter day, Jesus pops in and out of the disciples' lives for 40 days. He's teaching them the scriptures. He's connecting with them through those days in different places at different times in different ways. Sometimes popping in when they're locked behind closed doors, sometimes in Galilee. There are all kinds of ways that Jesus connects with them in those 40 days as he pops in and out. And then on what must have felt like a fairly random Thursday, Jesus finishes his earthly ministry by blessing his disciples and by being carried up in their sight into a cloud. There you are. There's the story of the ascension. 
Now, the cloud in the gospel stories connects Jesus' baptism, where a dove descends from a cloud and a voice, the voice of God, comes from the cloud. His transfiguration, where the cloud of God's glory descends on the three disciples and God speaks to them. And the ascension, where Jesus is carried up into the cloud, the symbol of God's presence. The ascension, therefore, is this enacted metaphor of Jesus returning to the Father. It's a three-dimensional representation of what's happening in dimensions that we can't imagine, similar to the Eucharist. We see it in three dimensions, but it exists in many more than that. So, now if I were one of the disciples and I had just watched Jesus ascend, I am pretty sure that I would have assumed that Jesus was done with his work, had come to the end of the mission that God had sent him for, and he was heading home for well-deserved rest. I would have pictured the next scene being Jesus tossing a steak on the grill, grabbing his favorite pale ale, and relaxing. After all, saving the world was not easy. But instead of that, Jesus' followers came to see his ascension as the beginning of a new phase of work. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, puts it quite succinctly. Let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Peter points to these two aspects of Jesus' work, Lord and Christ, ruler and Savior, king and priest. So let's look at those two aspects and some scriptures about them. First of all, Jesus is Lord. That's the earliest creedal acclamation of the church. Jesus is Lord. Our services would be a lot shorter if we could do everything in three words instead of three giant paragraphs. Jesus is Lord. For the early church, the ascension was the moment when Jesus began his work of ruling as Lord. Listen to a few passages that make that connection. So if you've got your Bibles, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's a whole sermon series in those verses. But what I want you to see is that for Paul, the ascension is the moment where Jesus is not just raised from the dead, but raised up to be seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. Writer to the Hebrews, 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now note that Jesus' earthly work is summed up in the phrase, making purification for sins. So the writer of the Hebrews is like, from Christmas to Easter, this is the work of Jesus. He's making purification for sins. He's dying for us. But once that's done, he now is seated at the right hand of God, and he is upholding the universe by his word of power. He's ruling. Writer to the Hebrews goes on, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, his earthly work, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, his earthly offering, his heavenly ruling, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. The heavenly work of Jesus in ruling is bringing all of the powers and authorities and dominions and principalities under his rule. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter 3, 22. Who has gone, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So when Jesus rises from the dead, that's not the end of the story. Jesus rises from the dead in order to be raised up to heaven to be seated on the throne at the right hand of God. From there, he rules. He brings everything back under his kingship. Now, if Jesus is actively working to bring all rule and authority and power and dominion into submission, how is he doing that? All right, you ready for a big surprise? Here you go. Through us. Yeah, that's right. Through us. The most insane decision that God ever made was to put the whole plan back so that we were partners. Actually, it really wasn't insane. That was the plan from the beginning. When God created people, he created them to rule. That was our original job. And it still is our job. We are called to be partners in this process of bringing all things back under the headship of Christ. So listen to a couple passages. Ephesians 3, 7 through 12. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ— and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That's what God is doing. Empowered by the Spirit, the church is called to manifest his wisdom. We're called through the gospel, through grace, through the empowerment of the Spirit, to be the community of people that announce to all of the heavenly powers the headship of Christ. That's our job. In case you question that, if you read ahead in Ephesians, you get to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, and this is what Paul says. Finally, yins, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus seated? In the heavenly places. What we discover in Ephesians is that we are seated in him in the heavenly places. And what are we doing in the heavenly places? We're wrestling against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. It's our job. Since Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father and rules from there, and since we are his people empowered by his Spirit, we too are called to wrestle and to bring the powers and principalities under the headship of Jesus. Like I said, this idea of being partners in God's ruling goes all the way back to creation in Genesis 1. But it flows all the way to the book of Revelation, where we're described as a, as kingdom, as a kingdom and priest to God, who shall reign on the earth, Revelation 5, 9. And where we're told that the Lord will be their light, and they us, will reign forever, Revelation 22. So it looks like we'll be working with Jesus from home quite a while, reigning forever and ever. So Jesus is Lord. That's one aspect of the ascension. But the other part is that Jesus is our priest. Along with ruling comes this part of Jesus working at home. He's our priest, our mediator, our intercessor. So for example, Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, not just on Easter, but raised to the right hand of God, who as it, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Part of Jesus' at-home work is to rule, but part of his at-home work is to intercede for us, to stand on our behalf in the presence of the Father. Writer to the Hebrews, again, Hebrews 4, 14. Since 
then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is our high priest. And then later in Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Every passage in the New Testament that points to intimacy with the Father, or abiding in Christ, or coming to the throne of grace, or making our supplications known, all of that is woven into the work that Christ is doing at home now on our behalf as mediator, priest, and intercessor. And so he rules. But he's also our priest, praying for us, representing us. Those are the two aspects that Peter brings out in his first sermon at Pentecost. Let me sneak in one more aspect of the work of Jesus, and that's the work of our husband. He alludes to this in the upper room before his death, John 14, 2 and 3. They're asking him all kinds of questions, and Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Here was the custom of the day in Jesus' day that at betrothal, the husband to be, would make a commitment to the bride-to-be to build a home for them. And typically, if they didn't live in the same village, the husband-to-be would go back home, and in his father's house, in his father's property, he would build a home for him and his new bride. And when the home was finished, the groom would come and receive the bride and take her to this home. That's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing that place of intimate connection. He's preparing that home for us. And he'll come back to bring us to that place of delight and joy. The focus of all the work that Jesus is doing at home is to reunite us with him in overwhelming and constant love. It's interesting to note that the most common image of heaven is a wedding feast. And we are the bride. Now sometimes the feast of the ascension gets treated as a secondary feast. It doesn't get the hoopla of Christmas or Easter or even of Pentecost. And it falls on a work day. But in many ways, Good Friday and Ascension are the heart of the gospel. Everything else flows from them. The cross and the throne together symbolize the whole work of Christ. His work on earth, 
and his work from home. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would, by your spirit, connect us to the depth of this truth. I pray that we would know you as the ruler, know you as our priest, know you as our groom, that you would take us deeper into the work that you have already accomplished and the work that you are doing. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.